they were shocked and astounded as he read the words. Benjamin Franklin was on a diplomatic mission to France, and he was living for a time in the capital city of Paris. And he found himself surrounded by sophisticated, cultural despisers of the Bible. It was in vogue in that day and time to be skeptical of God's Word. Well, Benjamin Franklin decided to put their skepticism, their disdain, to a test. And so he walked into a gathering one evening with a manuscript, and he said, it contains an ancient poem I want to read. He said that they would be impressed with the stately beauty of the words. So, of course, they asked to hear this ancient poem. He began to read the last few verses of chapter 3 of the book of Habakkuk. He read these words. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord." I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer. He makes me tread on my high places. The reading was received with exclamations of extravagant admiration. What a magnificent piece of verse. Where did you find it? To which Benjamin Franklin gleefully responded, I found it in the Bible. Now what makes a passage like the one Benjamin Franklin read, the one we just heard, what makes a passage like that in an ancient piece of literature called the Minor Prophets, what makes a passage like that so very compelling? So very powerful. I believe the power of those verses that I just read, that Benjamin Franklin read, is found in the word, yet. There is power in the word, yet. I want you to think about that as we look at these verses together this morning. Turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3. We are finishing our sermon series in Habakkuk today. We're going to begin reading in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2. We're going to cover this entire chapter uh, this morning. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2 is what we will read to begin our time together. This has been a brief journey, but a, a wonderful journey, full of rich, wonderful truths about our great God. And so, Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2, I want to ask you to stand this morning if you are physically able in honor of the reading of God's Word. The Bible says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, Remember mercy. Let's pray together. 
Father, we come to you today in Jesus' name. And we freely confess that we need you every hour. And we need you in this moment. Father, for this time to be of profit, we ask you just to move in our midst. Would you anoint, Lord, this message by your Spirit? Would you anoint the hearers of this message by your Spirit? Would you accomplish great and mighty things in our midst? Lord, may we leave this room today different than when we walked in. Glorify yourself. It's all about you today. And may we seek your face in this moment. Lord, I ask you to establish my footsteps in your word. And we ask and pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. I've given you a, or an outline of this book. I've given it to you every week because it's helpful to think about this book in uh, a systematic way. The outline is very simple. There are two Q&A sessions in the first two chapters, and then in chapter 3 we see Habakkuk's prayer of response. So wait, what were the Q&A sessions all, uh, all about? Well, we know that Habakkuk lived in a time of great spiritual decline, probably following a great revival. During the days of King Josiah, Josiah led the, the Jewish people to great reforms, great revival. God used him in a mighty way. But after that time of revival, there was great decline. God's people turned their back upon the Lord and began to go back to their idolatry and to their wicked living. And so in chapter 1, the first Q&A session... Habakkuk is surveying the spiritual landscape and he's looking around and he's saying, Lord, don't, don't you see what's happening? Don't you see how far your people are from you? I've been praying for you to do something. Why have you delayed in answering my prayer? Why, God, is this happening? How long until you move in our midst? Well, God answers his prayer, answers his, or answers his question. God says, well, Habakkuk, I am doing something. You, you can't discern it, but I'm raising up a new superpower called the Chaldeans or the Babylonian Empire. And I'm going to use the Babylonian Empire as an instrument of judgment against my people, and this will get my people's attention. Well, that brings us to the second Q&A session where Habakkuk basically says, God, I don't like that plan. I've been asking you to do something, but I didn't have that in mind. You're going to use the Babylonians, the wicked, pagan Babylonians? They're worse than, than we are, God. They're worse than your people. Why would you use them as an instrument of judgment? I don't understand how you judge your people, but the Babylonians get away with their evil. Well, God patiently responds to Habakkuk. He reminds him that... The Babylonians aren't getting away with anything. They were fierce warriors. And they were wicked. And God was going to use their, their military might to judge his people, to overthrow Jerusalem and surrounding areas, and to get his people's attention with that judgment. But there was going to come a day when God would judge the Babylonians too. They weren't getting away with their wickedness. God was going to uh, judge them for their evil. And so nobody was getting away with anything. And he basically says to Habakkuk in chapter 2, listen, there are two ways to live. You live by faith 
or you, you live by your own uh, might. You live by faith in yourself. You live without God, and the consequences for living without God are devastating, so live by faith. That's, that's Q&A session number two. Well, in chapter three, which we're studying this morning, Habakkuk has asked God questions. Habakkuk has heard God's answers. And in chapter three, he just begins to worship. He responds to what God has said to him. Now remember, Habakkuk's name means to wrestle, or it could be translated to embrace. And we see Habakkuk doing both in this book. You might say in chapters 1 and 2, Habakkuk is wrestling with the will of God. He's wrestling with his questions, wrestling with God's ways. He doesn't understand what's happening all around him. He's perplexed. But in chapter 3, we see Habakkuk embrace God's will. And Habakkuk begins to worship God for who he is and what he was doing all around him. Now, I believe uh, that Habakkuk, and this is in your notes, Habakkuk models how you face difficult, perplexing times with faith. It's one reason I love this book, because Habakkuk is is a model of what you do when you find yourself in difficulty and, and how you address that difficulty, you address that crisis with faith. So we're going to learn from Habakkuk's example today. And we're going to learn four things that we need to do when we encounter difficult times, when we face difficult times. So let's walk our way through this this morning and walk through chapter 3. Number one, when you are facing difficult times, when you are facing perplexing times, you need to remember, remember. Look what the Bible says in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk. He's asked God questions. He's heard God's answers. Now he is going to respond by, uh, uh, by praising him, by praying to him, by embracing his will and his way. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigeonoth. O Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. So he says there in verse 2, I've heard the report of you. You know what Habakkuk's doing there? Habakkuk was remembering God's mighty acts on behalf of his people. And in verses 3 through verse 16, Habakkuk recounts God's mighty deeds on behalf of the Jewish people. For example, look what it says there in verse 3. God came from Timon. And the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah, that's the southern area south of the, the, the promised land. And so he's probably here thinking about the steps that God led his people through coming out of Egypt into the promised land. And look what he says. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence. And plague followed at his heels, probably a reference to the ten plagues that God sent on Egypt to get Pharaoh's attention so Pharaoh would let the Jews go from their captivity, from their slavery. He stood and measured the earth, verse 6, and he looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered, the everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction, the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble, probably speaking of the promised land when God gave his people conquest of the people living in the land he had promised to them. 
Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses or on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. In other words, God, you came to, you came to battle on behalf of your people. You fought for us, Selah. You split the earth with rivers, the mountains saw you and ride. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. You remember in the story of Joshua, Joshua is leading his people in battle and to accomplish the battle, they needed more time to completely defeat the enemy. And so God miraculously caused the sun to stand still in the sky so they could have complete victory over the, uh, the other army. He says there, you, you, the light of your arrows as they sped, the, the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury, you threshed the nations in anger, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck, Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You, you trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. And so he's just poetically recounting God's mighty deeds. And back in verse 2 he says, God, I've heard about your mighty deeds. I've heard about all that you've done on behalf of your people. And now he's rehearsing, he's remembering what God had done. Now there is great instruction in this for you and for me. Because you understand that remembering past mercies gives strength for present circumstances. Remembering past mercies gives strength for present circumstances. If you are struggling with the here and now, remember God's faithfulness in the past. And that those remembrances of God's faithfulness in the past will give you the faith you need and the perspective you need in the here and now. They say, wait, how do I remember God's past faithfulness? Well, first of all, you remember by reading the Bible. This speaks of biblical history. He says there in verse 2, Oh Lord, I've heard the report of you. There, there, there's information about you, God, about how you have shown yourself mighty to defend your people and to deliver your people and to preserve your people and fight on behalf of your people. I've heard, God, all that you have done. And God has ordained that, he, that, that human instruments have written down by His Spirit words that record his mighty deeds in human history. It's called the Bible. God breathed through human instruments, so they were writing down the very word of God, truth with no mixture of error, and the Bible is a record of the ways of God. You might say that the Bible is a record of God's faithfulness. So if you need your faith strengthened in the here and now, read the Bible. You can't help but be reminded of how good God is and how mighty God is and how God uh, comes to the aid of his people. It's all uh, in the Bible everywhere. So read your Bible, biblical history. Since I've heard the report, read your Bible to remind yourself of the faithfulness of God. But secondly, you remember by looking back at God's work in your life. This is personal history, personal history. If you're a believer in Christ, you've got a faith story. God is your God. You have a personal 
relationship with the one true God and you have a testimony of God's faithfulness in your life. And can I say this on biblical authority? God has never let you down. I'm not saying life hasn't been difficult or hard, but God is there. And God works in the midst of the hardship. And God works in your life. And God is always, 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 always faithful. So so look back over your life. You can't help but see God's hand on your life and how God has led you to the here and now. And that remembrance of past mercy strengthens you in present circumstances. There's a song I quote often by Stephen Curtis Chapman. He says, I may not see in front of me, but I can see for miles when I look over my shoulder. And Lord, it's clear you've brought me here. So faithful every step of the way. Your present may be murky. Your present may be unclear. But if you will stop and look back over your life, you will clearly see the fingerprints of God all over your life. And you will be strengthened by that remembrance of God's goodness to you. And it helps you carry on in the here and now. I read a story about Dr. Zinko Rinku of Birmingham, Alabama. You remember earlier in the year, Birmingham and Atlanta experienced devastating ice storms. And in the midst of this great ice storm in Birmingham, this doctor who was a neurosurgeon was alerted that there was a man that needed emergency surgery. And without the surgery, he was probably not going to live. And so this neurosurgeon gets in his vehicle and gets out in the snow and ice. And he gets on the interstate and he finds himself in traffic that is not moving at all. There were wrecks and people sliding all over the place. And so traffic was at a standstill. So you know what this doctor did? He got out of his vehicle... And he walked six miles to the surgery center. When he got there, he immediately took the man into surgery. And by his operation, he saved the man's life. Incredible story of this doctor walking through snow and ice and then performing the surgery with skill so this man could be saved. Now, now question. Let's just say that the man who had the operation finds himself in need of another operation from a neurosurgeon. Who do you think he's going to call? I would bet that man would want the same neurosurgeon that showed the compassion and the wherewithal to walk through snow and ice to get there and then displayed the skill to perform a successful life-saving operation. No question, that man would want the same doctor, right? Because he would remember how that doctor had intervened in his life in the past. He would want that same doctor. Can I encourage you with this? If you'll stop and look back over your life and see God's faithfulness, I promise you, you will want that same God to show up in your life in the here and now. Because you know that God is faithful. So number one, When you're facing difficulty, remember. Number two, request. Request. Look what it says in verse two. Oh Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work, oh Lord, do I fear. 
In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. Now, Habakkuk is requesting two things in verse 2. Number one, he's requesting a revival of God's visible work. Now, God is always at work around us, right? But we can't always see his work. In, in our finite uh, mental and emotional and spiritual capacities that, that we have, we can't always see the work of God around us. Habakkuk could not see the work of God. That's why in chapter 1 he's asking, Why? How long? Where are you, God? Are you going to do something? Because he could not see God's work. Now, God was at work. He told Habakkuk, I'm raising up the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. I want to send them as an instrument of judgment. I'm doing something. You just can't see it. But in chapter 3, verse 2, Habakkuk is asking God to show him his work. God, I've heard about all of your mighty acts in the past. How you've shown your power and your grace. And God, would you revive that same work? Would you show me your power once again? I want to see your work With my own eyes, I want you to make your invisible work visible. In effect, Habakkuk is asking God to show his power. He's saying, God, I've heard of all your mighty deeds. Would you do it again? And by the way, that's a great prayer to pray. God, I've heard of all your mighty deeds. I know how powerful you are. I know that you're sovereign. I know that you're on your throne. I know that you're full of grace. I know that you're full of truth. And God, would you do it again in my life? Would you show me your visible work, what you've done in the past? Would you do it now? A prayer for God to do it again. Question, has God done some significant things in our nation? That's not rhetorical. Has God done significant things in our nation? Would you say that God has blessed us in our nation's history? Without question. Let's ask him to do it again. Has God blessed your family? Has God blessed your church? Ask him to do it again. I think about about God's history in the world. I think about things like the first great awakening which swept the, the colonies in the 18th century. I think about the, the second great awakening. Thousands upon thousands saved in the 19th century. I think about the Welsh revival at the beginning of the 1900s that, that swept that country in the United Kingdom and, and, and thousands were swept into the kingdom. I think about the, the prayer revival in New York City in the middle part of the 19th century. I think about all these great revivals, these great, great movements of God. And I look at the spiritual apathy of our land and I think, God, do it again. Send another revival. God, do something. We want to see your visible work. We know you're working, but God, show us your power. Let us see your fingerprints all over our life. Do it again. That's what he's praying here. But he makes another request. He's also requesting mercy. Look at the end of verse 2. In the midst of the years, revive your work. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. You know what he's saying here? God, I know judgment is coming. I know your people have crossed a line in your heart. And the Babylonians are marching our direction. And I know it's going to be devastating. I know it's going to be awful. I know it's going to be difficult. But God, 
in the midst of your wrath, would you just remember mercy? God, don't make it as bad as it could be. Would you somehow, in the midst of your devastating hand of judgment resting upon us, would you somehow preserve us with your mercy? That's what he's praying here. And guess what? God showed his people mercy. He did this in the Babylonians. In three different waves, they overwhelmed the nation of Judah. They overthrew Jerusalem. They tore down the temple. They took thousands of Jews captive into back to the Babylonian Empire in slavery and exile. It was a dark, dark time. But listen, after 70 years, God raised up the Persian Empire to overthrow the Babylonian Empire. And under the rule of the Persians, God allowed the Jews to return back to their homeland. And Ezra and Nehemiah record that they returned and rebuilt the temple and rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem. A a very significant thing. God did not completely destroy his people. He preserved them. So one day he could send through them a Messiah named Jesus. Isn't that good? And so in the midst of his wrath, we still see God's mercy. It was not as bad as it could have been. And by the way, that's what mercy is. Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. And can I tell you this this morning? Our only hope is mercy. If God gave us all what we deserve, we would all be in trouble, right? But God is merciful and full of grace. And Habakkuk knows that. God, I know judgment is coming, but would you somehow, some way... Show us mercy. And God does. If you find yourself in devastating situations, if you find yourself in difficult circumstances, would you just cry out for God's mercy? God, this is really hard. But it's not as bad as it could be if you'll just show me mercy. God, help me in this moment. That's what Habakkuk asked for. So Habakkuk, in the midst of his of his trouble, in the midst of his perplexity, he's asking God for help. Years ago when I was a little boy, I was with my family at a water park in Florida. And we went on a, a water slide and down into the water. This place was called River Country, so you actually come off the slide into a river. And I came off the slide, my dad was right behind me. I remember the water was kind of deep, and my dad recognized that, and I was getting kind of tired swimming. So my dad said, Wade, would you just put your arms around my neck? So I swam over to dad, put my arms around his neck, and he was kind of swimming over to where we needed to get out. And he was going to t- kind of take a break for a moment. And so there were these logs that were in the water that were chained together, which served as a boundary there in that water. And dad put his hand on the log, and the log began to spin in the water. Just, and he couldn't get a hold on it. And so he kept trying to get a hold, and the log just kept spinning. Well, dad started getting a little bit tired. And I was holding on, you know, and dad was thinking, okay, let me get a grip. He couldn't get a grip, and he was, he was just getting a little bit more weary, a little bit more weary. And dad looked over, and about from here to that, uh, that end of the stage there, there was a lifeguard just standing there. And dad said, little help, please. And the lifeguard got a long pole, and he held it out, and just kind of pulled my dad and me in, and everything was fine. But in the midst of that time, 
dad recognized he needed some help. And can I tell you this? When your life is falling apart all around you, you need help. So listen to me. Why don't you ask God for help? That's what Habakkuk does. God, I need you. Show revival. Show me mercy. God, I need your help. Request. But here's the third thing that we learn from Habakkuk. When you find yourself in the midst of difficult circumstances, rest. Rest. Look what the Bible says in verse 16 of chapter 3. I hear and my body trembles. My my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. You know what he's saying there? God, I know the Babylonians are headed this direction. And it's not going to be good. They are a fierce people. And they are going to devastate us. And so he's he's full of fear. My my legs are shaking. My, My lips quivering. He's Full of fear. His bones were like rottenness inside of him. He, he had lost his, his, his strength, his inner strength, his fortitude. He was, he was terribly afraid. Look what he says in the next phrase. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. In other words, God, we're going to go through this judgment I know it's coming, then I know you're going to deal with the Babylonians down the road. You're going to judge them as well. I know this is all in your hands. So God, I don't understand everything, and I'm not looking forward to what's going to happen, but God, I will quietly wait. Now that word in the Hebrew that's translated quietly wait means to rest. It means to settle down. It means to have repose. It means to just be quiet. That's what the word means. So Habakkuk is saying, Lord, in the midst of my perplexity, in the midst of my fear, I know that you're God and I'm not. So I will rest. I'll rest in the knowledge, God, that you're in control. I'll rest in the knowledge that you're merciful. I'll rest in the knowledge, God, that you know what you're doing. I will quietly wait for the day of trouble. That's what he's saying. You see, in the face of paralyzing fear, Habakkuk could rest because he knew that God would make everything right. Yes, judgment would come on God's people, but judgment would also come on the Babylonians. God was going to take care of it all because he's God, and that's what he does. And Habakkuk says, I can rest. I can wait quietly. Consider Psalm 37, verse 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Some of you walked in this room today fretting. Right now you're sitting in your seat and you're fretting. The Bible says, fret not. Wait patiently for the Lord. Listen, he's God and you're not. And that knowledge can really help you in your life. If you realize that even if you don't have it all under control, God has it all under control, right? Rest! You know, sheep need a shepherd for many reasons. One of the reasons that sheep need a shepherd is because if they feel harassed at all, they'll not get proper nutrition, they'll not get 
sleep because they'll be agitated. They'll never lay down and rest if they don't know that they're free from all trouble. One of the jobs of a shepherd is to, is to make sure there are no enemies lurking so that the sheep know that they're safe and the sheep will rest. Isn't it interesting that in Psalm 23 the Bible says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. In other words, David is saying, because the Lord is my shepherd, even though I walk through a valley, I can rest. Because God has me in his hands. God has my life in his hands. God has these circumstances in his hands. I can rest. God is watching over me. So can I encourage you when you find yourself in difficult, perplexing situations, when you find yourself in the midst of trouble and trial and tribulation, when you find yourself in the midst of crisis, when your life is coming apart at the seams, you can rest in the wonderful knowledge that our sovereign God is in control. Rest. Wait quietly for Him. When confronted with fear, trust God's goodness, justice, and power. But there's one final thing I want you to see. When you find yourself facing difficulties, remember... When you find yourself facing difficulties, request. When you find yourself facing difficulties, rest. But last, when you find yourself facing difficulties, rejoice. The passage we're about to read is one of the greatest expressions of faith in the Bible. Look what the Bible says there in verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines... The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Verse 17 lists disaster. It describes the loss of daily provision. It describes the loss of economic strength. It describes the loss of the Lord's blessings. And Habakkuk says, judgment is coming. We could very well lose everything. But look what he says. Yet, verse 18, I will rejoice. What? Even if I lose everything, we lose our herds, there's no fruit on the vine. Even if we've lost everything, yet I will rejoice. Can I tell you this this morning? There is power in the word yet. No matter how difficult your life is, no matter what you're going through, by the grace of God, you can always say yet. My circumstances will not define me. I will be defined by my relationship with God in the midst of my circumstances. So even though my life is coming apart at the seams, yet, yet, I will rejoice. They say, wait, how in the world can Habakkuk rejoice in the midst of what's coming? 
How can I rejoice? Wait in the midst of my crisis. Let me give you three reasons you can rejoice very quickly. Number one, rejoice because you have a relationship with God. Notice in verse 18, he says, I will rejoice in the Lord. Notice that Lord is all capital letters. When you see the word Lord in all capital letters in the Old Testament, it speaks of the divine name of God, Yahweh, sometimes pronounced in that way. This is the covenant name of God. In other words, Habakkuk's not talking about a distant, impersonal deity. He's talking to a God he knows. He has a relationship. The same, the same divine names used in verse 19 where it says, God the Lord. Literally, it's Yahweh, my Adonai, or Yahweh the Adonai. Divine name, the Lord. And so he uses the divine name here twice, which speaks of his relationship, his covenant relationship with God. But then look what he says in verse 18. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. I believe that Habakkuk here is talking about personal salvation. Going back to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. The just shall live by faith. And he's saying, I've put my faith in you. I've experienced personal salvation. And so when you find yourself in the midst of difficulty, you can rejoice if you have a relationship with God. Because listen to me. If you lose everything, but you have God, you have enough. Let me say it again. Don't miss that. If you lose everything, but you have a relationship with God, you have enough. So wait, how do I have a relationship with God? Only through Jesus Christ. We're separated from God because of our sin, but God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth, and Jesus Christ came and took on human flesh, fully God, fully man, and of his own volition, he went to the cross, and on the cross, he took all of our sin on himself, and he died on the cross, taking the punishment that you and I deserve. He died for our sins, and then after he died, he was buried, and and early on the third day, he rose from the dead, he defeated death itself, and if you will place your faith in him, he will save you, he will forgive you, he'll reconcile you to a holy God so that no matter what you're going through, you have God, a relationship with God to carry you through. So you can rejoice. Yes, my life right now is very, very hard, but I have the Lord. I know God. Praise the Lord for that. Secondly, you can rejoice because because God gives you the strength you need. Look in verse 19. God, the Lord is my strength. So I'm, I'm, I'm facing difficulty, I'm facing perplexing times, but I know that God will give me the strength that I need. And here's my question for you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that no matter what you face in this life, God will give you what you need to get through it? Do you believe that? I believe that. And Habakkuk believed that. And so he could say, I rejoice, God. I rejoice because you give me strength. You will somehow, some way, carry me through. But here's the third reason you can rejoice. You can rejoice because God can turn your valleys into mountaintops. Look in verse 19. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He, he makes me tread on my high places. 
The picture of the deer treading on high places speaks of sure-footed confidence in the midst of tough times. He's saying, even though I'm going through difficulty, I believe that God will somehow use this to put me on the mountaintop. Can I tell you this? And if you've tuned me out to this point, just tune in just for a second because this is so important. God often does the most significant work in our lives during tough times. God often does the most significant work in our lives during tough times. So even though you're going through a tough time, you can rejoice because God is going to do something in your life in the midst of that. He's going to take you from the pits and put you on a mountaintop and give you sure-footed confidence. You can rejoice in the midst of your hardship. Now listen to me. To be able to say the word yet takes spiritual maturity. It takes spiritual maturity to say when your life is falling apart, yet I will rejoice. And let me illustrate how spiritual maturity works in a time that is difficult. Let's just say that I found myself sick. And there was a shot that could heal me of my sickness. Let's also say that my baby boy Connor, three weeks old today, has the same sickness and the shot will heal him too. Let's say that we go to the doctor's office together. Can I just tell you this? I'm going to interpret the pain from that shot a lot different than my three-year-old son, right? I'll understand that there's pain, but the pain is good. It ultimately will bring healing. Connor's not going to get that. It's just going to be pain, right? And he would cry and he would shriek. I hate going to give my kids shots. I hate being there. I hate it. Because they cry and they shriek and they don't understand the pain. It takes maturity to understand that the shot is a good thing. And it takes real spiritual maturity to know that in the midst of the pain you can rejoice. Because God is doing something. God is at work. Baby Christians, it's hard for them to get this. But those that are growing in their faith, growing in their walk with God, can interpret their pain through this lens. And they can say, even though my world is falling apart, listen, yet, yet, I will rejoice. There's power in the word, yet. Yet. 